as you can see there, if you sort of scan your eyes on the context of chapter 4 in Ephesians, or if you were here last week, God is wanting to change his people. He wants each of us to be different, to literally be made new. God wants to change us, and we have the opportunity to participate in that change. And we saw last week, you can see earlier in chapter 4, that the way that we participate is to put off the old self and put on the new. The question that we probably all ask, though, is where are we going to see this change? Well, as we uh, come to God's Word, as we seek to be shaped by it, as uh, we saw last week, uh, thinking as a church about how to be uh, deliberate and daily in allowing God's Word to shape us, we are expectant that our blind spots will be exposed. There will be opportunities for change as God exposes areas in our life where He is wanting us to be different. But many of the opportunities for change will be seen in the way that we relate to one another. And so having set up this paradigm of putting off the old and putting on the new, Paul then goes into this list of particular relational scenarios, situations that will demonstrate the putting on of the new and the putting off of the old. And so we see in our first verse there, verse 25, Paul says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. Now there's a continuation here, you can see it, of the putting off and the putting on, but again the context of it is who the church is. The church is one body. Many members connected. And now this image of God's people reflecting and embodying truth is something that is being characteristic of God's people. We see it all all the way back in the Old Testament. In Zechariah 8, uh, when God was speaking to the remnant of Israel, he directed that they would be a people who are characterized by truth. And so too now, as the church functions as the body, each member playing its part, those who are in Christ are to put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Now, Paul has already instructed the church to speak the truth in love to one another. He's given that as sort of the means by which they would be strengthened, that they would mature. But here, he puts the reminder of one of the obstacles to truth, that of falsehood. Now, I'm not sure anyone who walked through the door this morning would say, yeah, lying's good. I think we'd all sort of say, no, no. <laughs> Lying never works out for the better. It's always better to speak truth. But why is it that this is a wrestle to put off falsehood and to speak truthfully? Well, perhaps it's when truth gets in the way of other things that we value. As I've been thinking about it this week, I think harmony and living at peace with one another. That's often one of the things that truth can get in the way of. Now, in this passage here, Paul is talking about neighbour in the context of church members, those who are followers of Jesus. But if we think about how truthfulness might play out in our neighbourhood, I think we might just start to feel some of the tensions we wrestle with in the battle to put off falsehood and speak truth. Now, whether you live on a street or in an apartment block, we've all got literal neighbours, And I think, again, everyone who walked through the door today would sort of say, 
it's good if we can live in harmony with those around us. We want to be at peace with our neighbours. And so generally we would say that being truthful and honest is a good thing. Until, of course, there's something that we want to do at our place that we think our neighbour might not be so happy about. There's something that we want to do in our apartment that strata, well, they're just going to make it a lot more complicated and probably more expensive for us to actually make that kind of change. And so this is, I think, where the tension of truthfulness and falsehood starts to play out. So maybe falsehood is withholding information. Maybe it's about being intentionally vague, even though we're very clear in our minds about what our plans are. It's in these subtle elements of day-to-day life where the temptation to embrace falsehood over truth can occur. And why why do we succumb to it? Well, often it's to protect our own interests. Perhaps we just want to keep the peace. We don't want there to be an argument. We don't want there to be a disagreement. And so, perhaps someone parks in a way that takes up two car spots, someone's new dog barks all night, someone hogs the communal clothesline, and maybe we sort of, you know, whinge to the other neighbours about them, but when we see them face-to-face, do we embody truthfulness? Or do we just sort of try and keep the peace and in doing so embrace falsehood? Now, each of those different situations, I'm sure with our temperaments, we've all got different uh, ways in which we would deal with them. But I think the point here with this tension between falsehood and truth is that falsehood in many situations is the easier option. But God is saying for relationships amongst his people, Truth is important. The fact that we are members of one body, our interconnectedness, it requires us to do the harder thing, to have the more direct conversation. So the first embodiment of this new self that Paul articulates here is to put off falsehood and to speak truthfully. But the pattern continues down in verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Again, there's the paradigm. Rather than taking from others, give to them. Now, to be able to give, you need to have something to give and to have something, you need to have earned it. But again, the pattern is pursue what's harder because it's better. Work to obtain things rather than stealing it. Now, to steal something means that you get it sooner, you get it somewhat easier, but you obtain it without the cost. But despite the immediate gratification and enjoyment of stealing something, there's always the lingering guilt, isn't there? Have a think about, if you can, back to your childhood and when you first became aware of money. When you first became aware that money could obtain you things that you wanted, Sweet things, lollies, toys that everyone else had. See, in in this moment when we start to become aware of what things value, often then the temptation is presented. Oh, that's where there's money left around our house. Hmm, 
I wonder if anyone will notice if I take this money. Now, perhaps you succumb to the temptation like I did as a child. You take the money, you go to the school canteen, you buy the special treat and you eat it as quick as you can and you make sure that the packet is gone straight in the bin, not into your pockets, so that mum or dad don't find out. Immediate enjoyment, but just sort of a lingering guilt. As opposed to the experience of when you get your first job and you start to see money that you've earned and then you save it up and then you go and buy something. And then there's sort of this willingness to to tell everyone about it. And rather than the enjoyment diminishing, it actually increases as you get to experience the satisfaction of playing with this new toy that you've saved up for or being able to invite others to play this new video game that you've been able to purchase. This is the paradigm that Paul is presenting. Put off the old self that can so easily just want to take things and experience immediate enjoyment and put on the new self that sees that the purpose that God has for us is to work hard, to be able to earn things, not just for our self-enjoyment, but to share, to share with others. So then, our third paradigm in verse 29, along this putting off and putting on, Paul says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now, for those who are parents in the room, I know as a parent that one of the most confronting things I face is when unwholesome talk comes out of the mouth of my child. I think, whoa, where'd you, where'd you, where'd you learn that? And often, at a young age, it's sort of that they've heard something in the playground and they don't really know what it means, but, you know, they, they try it out at home. You're like, oh, no. <laughs> and so then, as you sort of start to perhaps see with their lips that it's going to appear again, you give them the stern eyes, give them the gritted teeth, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's not the way to speak in this household. But perhaps even more concerning as kids grow up and grow older is to see the unwholesome talk become part of their ongoing vocabulary. And so we see that the, the danger of hurtful words, words that tear people down rather than build them up. And so Paul here is saying that words matter and that the old way of functioning was to take those little opportunities to to say the hurtful thing, to just get that retort, to just dig into someone, to make yourself feel a little bit better by tearing them down. But instead, the new way is to see that words are for building others up. Now, this isn't just sort of Christians being nice and sort of being all, oh, yeah, that's fantastic, being all kind and quite superficial. The kind of meaningful words are words that are helpful for one another. The words that benefit, that address particular needs that people have. And so again, in this sort of construct about putting off the old and putting on the new, Paul is encouraging us to do the harder thing, to speak in constructive ways. It's going to require more effort. It's going to involve more time. But what it is, 
is a picture of what God is desiring amongst his people. Real relationships. Real relationships where there are meaningful discussions. Where we actually share experiences of life with one another. Where we genuinely want to contribute for the good to help the other. And so again, our words are central to the way that we build one another up. The way that we speak to one another is a priority for God amongst his people. Which is why when there's any unwholesome talk, it grieves God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Sorry, I've got another version up there from the 9am. With whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. And now Paul has previously described the way that God has stamped his people with his own character. That the Holy Spirit literally guarantees that God is going to protect his people until he takes final possession of them. But we need to remember, because it's easy to forget, that God's Spirit is present amongst his people. God is personally present and active amongst the life of the church. God is exposed to everything that happens within the church community. And so one of the realities of this is that we need to remember that there are no secret conversations within church life. You know that sort of secret conversation that you sort of just have with one other and you think, oh yeah, we're going to be honest here, we're going to talk the truth. Well, God is there. And if that one-to-one conversation is unwholesome, then that grieves God. This is not the desire that he has for his people. Words and conversations that are incompatible with the unity and purity that God desires for his people personally grieves him. And he's grieved because in that moment in that seemingly innocuous conversation, people are forgetting who they are, that they've been sealed as members of the body by God's Spirit. They're failing to believe who they are. They're embracing the old self with words that that aren't filled with truth, that aren't filled with words that build up others but have the potential to tear down others. And words that fail to engage in the character of God personally grieve him. And so we see here the emphasis on the way that we relate to one another. This is where we should start to see change happen in our life and in our character, in the way that we engage with one another. We see that God is relentless for change to occur in his people. And so again in verse 31, he encourages us to put off any tendencies of the old self. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Now really Paul is escalating, describing the escalating levels of disharmony that can occur. You know, that sort of inner resentment towards that person can then perhaps 
produce a, a, a loud outburst, that there can be sort of seething rage or a public shouting match. Now, whilst these behaviours might not be the normal sort of Sunday morning tea routine, and most of us sort of <laughs> realise that this is not really Christian behaviour, Paul's warning here is how quickly things can escalate. And this is where probably the most challenging part of our passage today, in this midst of the putting off and putting on, actually exists. We read here in verse 31 that anger is something to be put off. But in that verse that we conveniently slipped a little bit earlier, back to verse 27, we read this. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Now you see here on the, uh, the passage up here that it sort of says be angry and so you'll see that there's different translations on verse 26 but uh, it seems like the, the clearest translation of what the intent is is this sense of being angry. It's not just those occasions where you might happen to find yourself being angry. But here is some, an affirmation that anger is something that is a reality of life. There is a place for anger. Now, it's not that Paul's sort of gone out on a limb here on his own. Psalm chapter 4, verse 4 has the exact same phrase, be angry. And in this context, the psalmist was accused quite unjustly of some sort of crime or sin And he is aware of his innocence. And the weight of the claim hangs heavily on him. If you want to read Psalm 4, you can see it yourself. You can see the sort of full progression of being aware, of being unjustly accused and being angry about that. And we see in Psalm 4 about how God deals with someone in that situation. How he can bring about transformation for an unjust situation to actually cast that towards God and then experience joy and peace. But Paul here is picking up the idea that there is a place to be angry. So it's not that any time we are angry, we should immediately think, oh, that's the old self. I need to put that off. There are situations that should cause us to be angry when things that God loves are being ignored, being rejected, or being hurt, when we are in situations in life that are just a result of the brokenness and the corruptedness of this world that we live in, being angry at that is appropriate. Verse 31 is saying, get rid of anger that you're using and embodying to tear others down. Verse 26 is saying, when it is appropriate, be angry. But the new self, in the midst of anger, is to not sin. Now, what might sinning look like? Well, it might be that in our anger, we sort of just take matters into our own hands. We seek retribution immediately when we haven't gathered all the facts, that we just sort of don't care, and so we allow our anger to justify and dictate us to say anything, no matter how harmful it is. Anger could be a very quick retaliation rather than stopping and reflecting on why are we so angry 
about this. Now again, this falls within the context of the church as God's body. He's the head, we are all members. We are interdependent members. We have interpersonal relationships. Paul has encouraged us to speak the truth in love to one another, for the good of one another, to speak in ways that are helpful to one another. But we're going to have to expect that this kind of conversations are at times going to touch a raw nerve with us. And so sometimes perhaps we're going to say things in probably not the most loving way or perhaps we're going to hear things that we don't really want to hear. But again, relationships are the platform for real growth. But unfortunately, relationships are also the common context for our deepest anger. We get angry perhaps when we hear what hasn't necessarily been said but what we've heard. When someone exposes something that we treasure deeply. Sometimes we might get angry just because we're being disrespected or that we've been made to look silly or that we've been exposed as not being as smart as we really thought we were. Sometimes our anger is because we can't control every detail of everything like we'd hoped to. Or that we're just angry that we're missing out on other good things that people are experiencing. Friends, anger may well be common, but it's not always justified. So an important first step in the midst of our anger is to try and think, Why are we really so angry? Being angry is okay, but sinning in your anger isn't. So what are we going to do in our anger? Well, Paul says, don't let the sun set on our anger. Now, I don't think this is literally a directive to sort of say, never go to bed while you're still angry with someone. There are some conflicts that take much longer than 24 hours to resolve. There are times when we really need to create space so that our body can calm down, experience the hurt, gather our thoughts before we can try and deal with what has brought about our anger. But the directive here is to deal with the cause. We shouldn't just allow our anger to just wallow, to just boil away. Now, let's just admit that that's actually pretty tempting to do, isn't it? When someone's hurt you, there's sort of just a certain desirability in just remaining angry so that they know how much they've hurt you. But the danger in that is that it's giving an opportunity for the devil to take a foothold in our heart. You see, the devil is opposed to the unity that God desires for his body. Remember the image? The church is God's body. Each member is connected. It has a role in strengthening and working with one another. To allow fractured relationships to remain and widen, 
That's the devil's desire. God is inviting us in the midst of fractured relationships, in the midst of our anger, to try and deal with the cause. And when we are angry, we need to start to see that there's an opportunity for us to grow. Now again, that's not our default setting because I think when I'm angry, this is an opportunity for that person who made me angry to change. And that may well be the case. But the first step is to deal with ourselves and to see how God is wanting to grow us in the midst of this. And the kind of change that God is wanting from us is for us to press in on who God is. You see, what we put on in the midst of these hostilities is verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. God is the example of the new self. He embodies the new self that we're being recreated to be. And so in the midst of these tensions, we can't seek to manifest change in our own capacity. For anyone who's been in a situation where there's great conflict or deep pain, you know that it's almost impossible to truly be kind and compassionate to someone who's hurt you. Our often our strategies are either just pretend to be kind or pretend that we've forgiven someone. But the result of that is not a real peace with someone, but it's just a superficial peace, isn't it? You know, when we sort of say, oh, look, we've forgiven you, but we've never actually expressed to them how they've specifically hurt us. Or we say to them, look, oh, I've just moved on. Let's just forget about that and our relationship, let's just pretend it never existed. Well, you're never going to trust at a deep level again, are you? You see, the temptation in the midst of tension is to just have an independent response. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to forgive you. But for forgiveness to occur, there needs to be a relational dynamic because there's been a relational hurt. If you just try and do all the work yourself, it's just going to be a superficial peace that you ever have with that person rather than having real peace. And it's not a demonstration of the way that God has forgiven you. It's actually something quite different. Because how God forgives us is relationally. You see, despite God's right anger, towards our sin and everything that separates us from him, he doesn't just get out the the magical eraser and wipe us all clean. He doesn't just pretend that we haven't been as bad as we actually have. He actually exposes it. And he actually is willing to deal with it. And he deals with it at great cost to himself. You see, it's on the cross where Jesus empties himself and shows to the world that sin has consequences. Sin is to evoke anger. Sin needs judgment. And so it's on the cross where sin is named, shamed, 
and dealt with. But although Jesus deals with sin there, he doesn't deal with it in an independent way removed from us. Just as Jake helpfully guided us earlier in our service, he, God invites us to repent of our sin because he's wanting for the relationship to not be superficial but to be real, for there to be a real restoration and peace. And it's not just a once-off repentance. It's a pattern of repentance and belief. Again, as Jake said before, it's really important for the people of God to repent and own of specific sins and then to remember again, as we're going to do in the Lord's Supper, of the sufficiency of Jesus' death on our behalf. You see, it's the security of a restored relationship with God that gives us the courage to pursue forgiveness with those who have hurt us, to pursue forgiveness with those whom we've hurt. And this is where God brings about real change in us. This is where his church strengthens as we forgive each other. Now, just a couple of things on forgiveness. Forgiveness really requires that the facts of the dispute be laid out. And depending on the relationship, that can actually be quite complicated and take a little bit of time. Forgiveness also requires that the person who's been wronged can express how they've been hurt. When those who have wronged others are able to ask for forgiveness for the specifics of what they've done. Getting forgiveness right is something important for the health of God's people. But let's not be naive about it. It's, it's hard, and again, it's going to take time, and there will be situations where reconciliation won't occur, where relationships are too broken where people can't determine the facts of the dispute, where there's too much emotional pain for reconciliation to occur, even perhaps where there's power imbalances in relationship, which means that it's not safe to pursue reconciliation. Now, although it's messy, it doesn't mean that God's people give up on pursuing forgiveness. It's not to settle for some superficial peace where we just sort of get over things without actually discussing them. And again, our willingness to pursue forgiveness is because God forgave us. And so to be a church is to be a people who are following Jesus. And we see it there in chapter 5, verse 1. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, the security that comes from the love of Christ, the sufficiency of what he offered, the sacrifice that Jesus gave, gives us the the platform to try and relate well, knowing that he has offered what was pleasing to God, gives us the security to own our failings 
to look someone in the eye and say, I hurt you when I said this, when I didn't do that. Can you please forgive me? Now, friends, as as a church, we've been trying to see what does the future look like and we've been starting to think about what does it look like to be a church through which God is transforming us, transforming us. Well, I think one of the ways is one of the things we put as is this devotion to fellowship. And the kind of fellowship where transformation happens in us is what we've seen in this passage today where we put off falsehood and we speak truthfully to one another, but where we commit to working hard and giving for the good of others rather than taking the shortcut and just taking for immediate enjoyment. Where we turn from sin in the midst of our anger and we pursue kindness, compassion, and we pursue forgiveness. This is the kind of fellowship where transformation occurs because suddenly we start to see that God has actually equipped us fully for a life in this broken world. And rather than creating superficial relationships, there's these rich relationships that have history that have actually dealt with hurt and harm where forgiveness has been sought and forgiveness has been given. We start to see the power of what God is doing in this world. We're going to need God's help to transform us. Let's ask him to give us the same commitment to this kind of fellowship because it's the kind of commitment and fellowship that he is desiring and purposing for his people. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what a great privilege it is to be invited to be members of your body. Father, we frequently forget the privilege that we have. We know that in many ways the easier options for falsehood, for stealing, for just dwelling in our anger are the avenues that we take. Father, give us eyes and hearts that want to seek what you desire for us. Give us the strength as we feel weak. And we thank you that in all of this you are present by your spirit. Give us focus as to those areas that perhaps you've brought to the surface today. Conversations that we might need to recommence. Feelings that we might need to reflect on a little bit. Perhaps discuss with others to try and find out the cause of them. May we be devoted to your transformative work in us. And in doing so, may we be greatly encouraged 
to see the way in which you're working. We pray this all for your sake.